Welcome, everybody. Happy 2019 to all of you. Excited to see all of your faces this morning. My name is David Pucci. I'm one of the elders here at Antioch Waltham. My, uh, my wife and kids were in the first service, but Shoshana, my wife, my oldest, Caleb, Naomi, and then Noah, um, my family that, that go with me. We have been a part of this movement since uh, 2000, so almost 19 years, um, and it's been um, an exciting journey. It's been a pleasure to be on and seen a lot of, a lot of changes, a lot of faces coming and going, um, but uh, a consistent theme of being people who are in love with Jesus. So I'm excited to be able to speak with you this morning um, as we look to 2019, it's often a time where we take a look back at 2018 and we take a look at maybe the things that we felt like we did really well, that we enjoyed, and, and maybe some things that um, we didn't do so well, some things that we would like to improve on. It's one of those times a year where we can reflect and say, well, I'd like to change this about me. I'd like to see this be different or more consistent. The phrase you hear a lot is, new year, new you. Um, and uh, I certainly am all for self-improvement, for making changes, for doing things to introduce um, consistency in our lives. Often times this will center around, you know, some different type of diet or some different type of exercise routine. Maybe it's a, a habit, a personal habit that you want to change or see different. Um, all good things, um, all things that are worth pursuing but if you're like me, um, this can also be kind of a two-edged sword. It can also be a time where you reflect on things that you want to see different and see changed. Um, and you reflect back on maybe your past attempts to change that. Maybe some past failures. Maybe some past ways that you've tried to make that exact same New Year's resolution. And it can really be a double-edged sword where you start to fall not into this sense of, well, I can really be empowered to change myself, but you fall into this um, lull of not believing that you can experience change. Have you ever heard these words as you think about New Year's resolutions? You'll never change. You might as well quit now. It's too hard. You should just give up. You're too weak. You've tried that so many times and failed. You'll never be free. See, I've heard those words. And maybe they're as simple as trying to change a diet or maybe they're more complicated about changing a, a sin pattern or the way you see yourself. But I believe it says in 1 Peter 5.8 that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. I believe that at this period in time, it's really easy for, the, for Satan to introduce lies into our heads. You see, Satan doesn't have to kill you. He doesn't have to physically take your life. All he really needs to do is get you to believe enough lies about yourself that you're sidelined, that you pull yourself out of the game and you put yourself on the bench. Now, I like to use sports analogies a lot because they make sense in my brain, but 
if sports isn't your thing, maybe think about a play or singing in a musical, whatever it would be, there is a role for you in God's plan and God's destiny. And it involves you not sitting passively on the bench, listening to lies, but actively being involved in his plan, saying yes to his plan, and fulfilling the destiny that he has. That's the getting off the bench and being into the game. But I believe that Satan wants to go after this. And he goes after it in an attempt to steal our identity. And so that's what I'd like to speak with you this morning about is the battle for your identity. I believe that this battle starts with a primary lie. And this primary lie is that you have to earn We've been conditioned to earn for as long as we can remember. Earning praise and affirmation from parents, earning grades from teachers, earning playing time from coaches, earning attention from boys or girls, and eventually earning paychecks from employers. We learned how to earn before we learned how to speak or walk. But our penchant for earning paralyzes us before God's offer of true grace. We don't know how to receive favor without working for it. And so then we subtly, or not so subtly, trade away the one true gospel because we prefer to work for and serve God as slaves, or at least as employees. And not as sons. We don't feel safe letting him do all the work. And earning gives us some semblance of control. We simply can't believe external security and everlasting life could be offered as a free gift. Has anybody been there? Has anybody been there where needing to have a little bit of control felt safer? We're needing to prove yourself. We're needing to earn your way in. Felt like the only option you have. I believe this is a primary lie that the enemy uses. And he uses it to put us into this place, this mentality, this thought process of thinking and acting like an orphan. Because if we can think and act like an orphan, then we will not, full, we will not fulfill our true purpose and destiny that God has for us. So how does an orphan think or act? I've got a list that I came up with. It's not a complete list. I'm sure we could add to it in, in many ways. But some ways that an orphan acts is that they don't know where his or her next meal is coming from. They don't know much about their identity. They have no security about who will take care of them. They have no one to cherish or treasure them. They have no family to lean on for comfort or help. There's one more. I think if you go forward, there may be one. Nope, okay. Then that's the last one. So these are some ways in which an orphan can think. 
this mentality that we can have. And we have examples in literature and in movies, tales of orphans who survive and thrive. The reality is, though, that if there is no parent present to provide the basic human needs of food, clothing, and shelter, not to mention the other higher needs we have as humans for love, identity, and security, the orphan has to try to find a way to make things happen on his own. The orphan mentality, then, is one of striving and loneliness. The orphan mentality is one of striving and lowliness. We feel like we have to make things happen on our own. The problem is, we can never do enough. We fall into this trap of doing in order to be. So I am going to perform. I'm going to do in order to be accepted, in order to be loved, in order to be valued. It's going to be my performance and what I can do and what I can be. The problem with doing to be is that you're only as good as your last successful attempt. So let me give you an example of how this works in my life. I love to pray for the sick because I love to see the power of God come and change and heal people. And there have been opportunities and moments where I've laid hands on people and I have seen miracles happen and the sick have been healed. Now what's very easy for me to do is to assume in that circumstance that, well, the reason that person got healed was because of something in me. Must be because I strung together enough really good days and I, I had five days in a row of a quiet time and so, hey, I've arrived. God recognized it. He chose to operate through me and that person got healed. Let's do that again. Now what happens when I lay hands on somebody? Same faith, same belief, and I see nothing. The rug now is ripped out from underneath me. And my confidence, my identity is shattered. And I start to think, oh, must be that I cut my quiet time a little short this morning. Must be that, you know, I haven't prayed passionately in a couple days now. Must be that I'm not doing something to earn the approval of God to work through me. And I will tell you that in my own life, that is a death spiral and you will just continue to spiral down and down and down so what i would like to suggest is not doing to be but being to do that we be a son or a daughter of the king that we be a co-heir to jesus that out of that being we then do the doing flows out of a central place of identity. Nothing happens because of me. Nothing happens because of David's performance, David's giftings. It happens because I am a son or a daughter. It happens because I am in right relationship with the Father. And now performance is thrown out the window. So guess what? If I lay hands on them and they're healed... 
Amen. That's amazing. If I lay hands on them and they're not healed, doesn't matter. Doesn't change who I am. It doesn't change how God sees me. And most importantly, it doesn't change how I see him. We allow our experiences in life. We allow the answered and unanswered prayers. We allow the disappointments. We allow the things of this world to determine our faith. And if you do that, you are just like the flotsam and jetsam left on the sea. You're tossed about. You have no stability. So I would suggest that we come to a place where we are sons and daughters, where we be in order to do. Living as an orphan results in striving, which results in guilt, shame, condemnation, and ultimately judgment. Living as an orphan is to live with guilt, shame, condemnation, and ultimately judgment. And that is a place that the enemy wants to keep us because if he can keep us way down with guilt and shame, he knows we will never be able to fully embrace our calling, our purpose, and our destiny, and we will remain on the bench. He doesn't even have to put us on the bench. We'll put ourselves on the bench. We'll say, God, I'm not good enough. I always mess up. I keep sinning. I can't get free of this sin pattern. I'm never going to be free. I might as well just give up. And the enemy's like, job done. Don't even need to mess with you anymore. You're on the bench. Guilt, shame, and condemnation results in a sin-conscious life. It results in our focus being on our sin as the primary thing. It's all we can see. It's weighing us down. Heavy chains that we can't get freed from. That sin-conscious life, we see that in the story of the prodigal son. A sin-conscious life says, as the prodigal son, I can never come home. I can never come home even though there's a loving father waiting for me. The sin-conscious life says, as the woman caught in adultery, and as Jesus stood over you and said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she said, There are none. And he says, neither do I accuse you. The sin conscious life in that scenario says, they're still standing over me with stones. And they're always going to be standing over me. And they're always going to be looking to throw stones at my guilt and my shame. I love how Jonathan Hessler, in one of his songs called Abba, he describes this encounter with the prodigal son and his father. And he says, Grace, this free gift that brings us back into favor and righteousness with the Father. Grace is the collision on the way back home to the arms of a father who won't let go. Think about this picture of a little kid who's so excited to see their parent. 
that they run as fast as they can, almost knocking their parent over to give them a hug. That's the picture I have. Grace is the collision on the way back home into the arms of a father who won't let go. The flip side of thinking and living sin conscious is to live God conscious. It's to live with the fact in mind of who he is, who he says you are, and what you think about him. It is not to live with guilt, shame, and condemnation of sin. Now let me just very, very briefly clarify. I am not suggesting, nor will you ever hear from this pulpit, that grace is an excuse to sin. Grace is not an excuse to sin. Paul is very clear about it. That we are not to take grace as this opportunity to just keep on sinning. Grace enables transformation. And that's what we believe. That through this gift of grace, this free gift that we could not earn, but that we receive, we are able to live God conscious, conscious of who he is, who he says we are, and what we think about him, and to have our lives transformed. And I promise you this, if you can move from a place of being sin conscious to a place of being God conscious, you will see yourself differently. You will see how God sees you. And just as important, when you go outside of the four walls of this church, you'll see other people differently. Because you're no longer going to see them through the lens of sin. You're no longer going to see them through the lens of guilt, shame, and condemnation. You're going to see them through the lens of your loving Father. And you're going to know that what you can speak over them is exactly what God is speaking over you. You are loved. You are valued. It'll change how we interact with our world. So if we're not to live as orphans, if we're not to live under the heavy weight of guilt, shame, and condemnation, then how are we to live? Let's take a look at Romans 8. I believe it gives us a beautiful picture of how we're supposed to live. Think back to that list I had of that orphan mentality. The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the family of God, and you will never feel orphaned. For as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection, Beloved Father, for the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our innermost being, you are God's beloved child. Quite a difference, quite a contrast to living as an orphan, to living under guilt, shame, and condemnation. Some of the things I love in that section of Scripture it says, you did not receive the spirit 
of religious duty. That's that earning. That's that performance. That's that mentality that says, I have to do in order for the Father to accept me. You did not receive the spirit of religious duty. Leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. One of the primary lies that the the enemy loves to sow and tell, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to get free. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance. Not partial acceptance, not acceptance on only your best day. Full and complete acceptance, which folds you into the family of God. And you will never feel orphaned. This is out of the Passion Translation. And I love this translation because it uses that phrase, that imagery of us never feeling orphaned. If you're honest with yourself, I'm sure there's at least one time in your life, if not many times, where you've convinced yourself that God has abandoned you. That God wasn't there. That He didn't come through. And that you were orphaned. And yet, the Word of God speaks to us this morning that we will never feel orphaned. And that our spirits will join Him in saying the words of tender affection. Beloved Father, that's that Abba Father, that intimate Papa Daddy word that is much more than just Father. It is the best dad in the whole universe. And what does this best dad in the whole universe whisper into our innermost being? You are God's beloved child. You are God's beloved child. He chose you. You are not an orphan. You are not an outcast. You are His child. What a beautiful picture. And through the free gift of grace, we are counted as righteous. We who were unrighteous and unworthy receive this free gift and are counted as righteous. I love this imagery in the next series of verses we're going to read in Romans 5. This imagery of being seen as flawless. Look at this. Our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us. And he now declares us flawless in his eyes. This means we can now enjoy true and lasting peace with God. All because of what our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, has done for us. Doesn't that sound like a much better way to live? Guilt, shame, condemnation, flawless in the eyes of the Father. How is it that we can be flawless when we feel so often as we're flawed? We're flawless because of the price He paid on the cross with His blood to wash us free of our sin. That is why we're flawless. Not because of your performance. Not because of uh, whatever stretch of time you can go without recommitting that sin. Not because of some 
gift you can use unto the Lord. You are flawless because, as it says in Hebrew 10, that Jesus responded to the Father and said, Yes, I will go. I will do it. I will pay the price for them. But how often do we switch around even that very simple picture of righteousness? You see, the word says that if we are faithful and just to confess our sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if we are cleansed of all unrighteousness, what is left by default? Righteousness. We are righteous, which means we have right standing. There's no enmity anymore. There's no counting of sin anymore. And the picture that I like to think of of that is Adam and Eve back in the garden. That beautiful, perfect picture of intimacy with the Father before sin entered the world. Every need taken care of. No identity issues. Perfect intimacy with the Father. Perfect intimacy without striving. But we get into these places where we change how we think about that. And we get into these places where like, well, you know what? That's just too good to be true. There's really nobody. Nobody would really love that much. Nobody could be that unforgiving. Because if God really knew how much of a mess I am, if he really knew how much I kept messing up, if he really knew all my struggles, there's no way. He's done with me. It's too much. And so we then get to a place where we think and assume, God just had pity on me. He, he was looking down from the throne room of heaven, and he's like, you see those? See them down there? Look how weak they are. Look how messed up they are. They're never going to figure this thing out. They're never going to be free. You know what, Father? Yeah, you know what, I guess. Might as well. I'll go. I'll go die for them because there's no hope for them any other way. They're so wretched. Now, the truth is, there is no hope for us any other way. But there's so much more to the story. Yes, Jesus had to die for sin. He had to pay the price to remove from us that which separated us from the Father. He had to go and, and endure and be the death of one son in order to inherit thousands of sons. But that is not the end of the story. He paid for sin to bring us back into right relationship with the Father he paid for sin because of value. You see, I believe that underneath all that sin, underneath all that shame and that guilt and that condemnation, underneath all those lies, that big mess that we are, Jesus said, I want him. There's something so valuable underneath that mess that I will pay to remove the mess to get to the value. I choose him. I choose her. I say often that the price paid for something determines its value. 
Nobody would go onto a car lot and look at a car that's $20,000 and suggest that they pay $30,000 for it. We would never do that. In fact, we would actually try to pay $20,000 or something less than $20,000 so we can go home and say we got a really good deal. Nobody pays more than what something is valued. And so what does that say about our God, our Father in heaven? That he bankrupted heaven to get to you. That he emptied the bank account of heaven. There was nothing left when he sent his son Jesus to die for you. He paid all of it to get to you. That is your value. You are not an orphan. You are not worthless. You are not abandoned. You are not undesirable. Jesus went to the cross to get you. And he wants you to not live like an orphan, but he wants you to live in freedom. And I believe that today is just as good a day as any to say this is my day of freedom. And I am going to leave guilt, shame, and condemnation behind. And I am going to embrace the vision that my Father has for me. A son does not strive to receive acceptance A son rests in peace because he is seen as righteous. And now when you do the work of God, the results are not what determine your status. You have unconditional love with zero performance strings attached. Unconditional love with zero performance strings attached. That means you can't earn that love. You don't have to perform for it. You don't have to be worthy of it. We know that we're not worthy of it. That grace and mercy is this free gift that we could never earn, but that's the beauty of it. Now we get to rest. We get to rest in that confidence. But the enemy would love to flip that whole thing on his head, completely change your identity and who you think you are, who you think God's, thinks you are and what you think about him and flip you into this place of earning of performance and of doing so that you'll get in a rut so that you'll get into a mindset that says I have to do in order to be I have to perform and earn no we are sons and daughters of the most amazing God in the universe, the most amazing dad. We are sons and daughters. You've been purified, you've been made holy, and you are flawless in his eyes. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. You know, there's nothing that... I can say that's going to set you free. There's no great words that I can come up with. There's no special song that we can do that's ultimately going to set you free. But it's having an encounter with the living God. It's reconciling those lies in your mind and saying, I want to be free. I don't want to carry those lies into 2019. I don't want to carry that guilt, shame, in condemnation into 2019. I love this picture 
in the tail end of Romans 8. It says this. It says that the entire universe is standing on tiptoes, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. Now, if you were here last week, Brendan was talking to us about the majesty of the king and the creation, and he put this picture up on the screen of one universe. It was the Sombrero universe, I think. And he was just, he was just talking about the majesty of this one universe that's so much smaller than even ours. All of creation, the entire universe is standing up on its tiptoes and it's calling out to you and it's calling out to me and it's saying, David, you're so much more than that. You're so much more than those lies. You're so much more than your past. You're so much more than a sin pattern that you feel like you can't get free from. You are a son and a daughter of the living king. You are a co-heir and I have purpose and destiny for you. In fact, I was knitting you together in your mother's womb and I was speaking over you. And I was speaking destiny and I was speaking purpose over your life. Not to, be, not to live bound by sin, but to live free. To be a son. To be a daughter in order to do. Because if we get to that place, God not only can, but he will use us. He will speak into our life. He will release us into purpose. You will see amazing things happen because you will look at yourself different. And you will look at others different. And so how do we respond to that this morning? I believe that this morning there can be two responses. There's probably many more, but two primary responses. If you feel like you want to be free of guilt, shame, and condemnation. If you're saying, I don't want to carry that into 2019. I don't want to carry in that heavy weight of judgment. I want to walk in freedom. Then I'm going to ask you to come forward. And there's going to be people to pray with you. This is not about shame, church. There is no shame in this. If you heard anything I said, it's that we all are underneath that, but we all have access to freedom. It is about freedom this morning. Guilt, shame, condemnation. If you want to be free from that, you can come forward, let people pray. If when I read that verse about the entire universe standing on tiptoes, waiting for you to be unveiled, waiting for you to come forward and step into your purpose and destiny as a son or daughter of the king. If you're saying that's where I am and I want a word, I want some kind of breakthrough. I want somebody to pray with me that ushers me into a new way of living in 2019. Then you can come forward over here and we're going to have people that will pray for you to, to receive that. And if there's just something else in your life and you're like, look, I just need to come forward. Come on forward. This is not a formula, right? This is about freedom that he paid in full. Respond now, church. We'll have people ready to pray for you.